podcast. The Bible says that if Jesus was not resurrected from the dead, then our faith is meaningless. And if Jesus rose from the dead, he had to die first. Why did he have to die? Teaching team member Jeff Norris brings us this message entitled, Take My Place, The Power of Substitution, which covers Genesis chapter 43, verses 8 and 9, and chapter 44, verses 30 to 34. For more information and to watch or hear other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. God, thanks for this time together. Thanks for the, um, the opportunity to gather in for the, the great privilege it is to be with one another in your presence and to open your word. Uh, Lord, would you remind us that your word is, is holy, that it is from you, it is inerrant, it is um, infallible, that it is the word of God to, to convict us, to shape us, to encourage us and mold us. And so, Father, would you give us soft hearts this morning? Would you give us eyes to see your beauty and our need for you, would you give us ears to hear what we need to hear? And so, Lord, bless this time, we pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So this time of year, as we move into the holiday season, uh, into Thanksgiving, which is mostly forgotten, apparently. But if you look around yard decorations this time of year, they're already there. Um, but into Thanksgiving and into Christmas, one of the things that I love about this time of year is all the smells, all the things, all the fragrance, fragrances and, and aromas that we're going to smell, if not already, that remind us, oh, this is Thanksgiving or this is Christmas. Uh, for me, one of the fragrances that I absolutely loved growing up, just thought this is divine, was my mom would put on the stove, she would boil this kind of cinnamon and orange peel potpourri. And she'd put it on the stove and boil it in a pot, and it would fill the house with this aroma that any time I smelled it, I would think, man, this is, this is home. We know that smell is so naturally connected to our memory and to nostalgia. And so we have all kinds of things that as soon as we smell them, we go, oh, yes. For me, that's uh, one of those smells is an old gym, an old basketball gym. <laughs> Love it. I grew up loving basketball, and we practiced in my high school. We had a new gym that we played games in, but we had an old gym that my dad played in, which means it's really old now. And uh, we would practice in that gym, and you walk into that gym, and it just smells like Hoosiers. It's just like, oh, the smell of sweat and old. <laughs> I love it. Other people that weren't as big a fans as I am of basketball and didn't enjoy practice would walk in and go, oh, I hate this smell. And I would walk in and say, man, just give me a bed. I'll sleep in here. <laughs> Loved it. We love smells. The aromas that we smell seasonally take us back to places that can be good for, for our memories, for, for, for uh, a time in our lives. Like for me, this, in summertime, the, uh, the smell of fresh cut grass, barefoot in the grass, running around doing whatever little boys do in, in the summer, football, baseball, uh, chasing bugs, whatever. In fall, it's burning leaves for me. And I don't, if you grew up in the suburbs of Atlanta, I think there's an ordinance. You can't bur uh, burn leaves in your neighborhood. But if you grew up a country boy in Alabama like I did, you smell leaves burning this time of year. And I love that smell. Winter's similar, the smell of a fireplace burning, you know, coming out of the chimney and the smoke. And we go, oh, yes. 
the spring, all the blooms and the smells of the flowers and honeysuckle and everything that's becoming to come out again after the, the dormant winter. I don't have to convince you of this, you know. You know what those nostalgic smells are for you, those are the aromas that you love. And I'm going to suggest to you this morning that there is an aroma that God loves. And it's the aroma of substitution. God loves the smell of substitution. Now, some of you just did the head dog, you know, the, the, the dog head turn, you know, ears up. Like, does substitution have a smell? Well, no, not really. But in the economy of God, what we see and what we're going to see in Scripture this morning is that he loves the aroma of substitution. Now, I don't have to convince you of, anything, of another thing either, and that's this. Substitution has power. We, you don't have to be a Christian. You don't have to know the Bible. You don't have to believe in this whole God thing to agree that when we have a story in front of us where someone has substituted for another... Someone who has stood in the place of another, someone who has taken the place of another for the sake of their good, we say that's a story that stirs me. We are moved by the power of substitution. We love movies where the plot of the movie is that by the end of the movie, the, the, the hero of the, of the movie, the, uh, the protagonist of the movie has given their lives for the sake of a spouse or a family member or a friend or, or the whole world. Right, And they've, they've sacrificed or substituted in such a way that others benefit. And we say, that's a good movie. We're stirred by substitution. Now, I'll tell you a story. I usually like to um, tell stories where I, I am not the hero in the story. And one of the reasons I usually tell those stories is because i got plenty to choose from. But I, I'm going to tell you one where it paints me in a positive way. But I'm going to tell you it was in eighth grade. And I don't know that you do anything in eighth grade that isn't at some level uh, stupid at, at some level. But... In eighth grade, Mrs. Hester's civics class, Ms. Hester had big hair. A couple buddies of mine and, and myself, we sat on the front row, and she put us there to keep an eye on us. And uh, we thought it was cool and fun to shoot spitballs in her hair when she was writing on the board. If you're a middle schooler and you're listening to this, please do not mimic that because that uh that was not cool anyway so we would do that from time to time well this one particular day I guess I had developed a conscience and I had not been doing it and but Kyle my buddy who was sitting right to the right of me on the front row he was doing it and he had made one uh, apparently that was a little too big <laughs> and when he shot it into her hair she felt it and she rakes it out of her hair and she turns around with embarrassment and frustration and lots of anger and says, who did this? Silence. And she begins to ask and go around the room one by one, who did this, who did this? And she suspects that it's Kyle the most. And so she comes up to him and she begins to zero in on him. Tell me the truth, tell me the truth, tell me the truth. Now, I don't know what possessed me to do this, but in the moment, I, for whatever reason, felt the urge to take the blame and be the substitute. And so I jumped in and I said, Miss Hester, it was me. And she goes, Jeff because I had somehow convinced her I was a good student. <laughs> and I said, yes, ma'am, it was me. And she said, I'm so disappointed in you. I said, yes, ma'am. And she said, you need to go down the hall to the principal's office. And this was a day and time where principals could still paddle. And so I got my paddling that I did nothing to deserve. I come back to the room and Kyle asked me what happened. I said, well, I got, a, I got paddled. He said, did it hurt? I said, yeah, yeah, it hurt. 
And then he looked at me, he says, why did you do that? And I, I genuinely said, I don't, I don't really know. But as I've thought back on it over the years, I think my motivation was this. Kyle was a lot bigger and stronger than me, and I enjoyed him being my friend. And I, th- I think I wanted him to stay my friend for all of eternity, and I thought this will be the way that he will always be on my side. But listen, there's power in substitution. There's power in it. We just had our 20-year, call that reunion. I couldn't think of the word. Uh, we just had our reunion and we st- we're still telling this story because there was a power in substitution that meant something to him. Had I not done that, who knows? I don't know. The story may have been forgotten, maybe. But there's a significance to when someone substitutes for another that carries weight with it in such a way that it resonates with the human heart. And I want to suggest to you this morning that that's not by coincidence. That's not just science. That's how God created us to respond to substitution because it's the very essence of of Christianity. If I were to ask you, what's one word, one word that you would use to sum up our faith, to sum up Christianity, what word would you use? And there would be many words that would be appropriate and perhaps even more appropriate than than the word substitute, but I would suggest to you that yes, love, yes, mercy, yes, grace, yes, compassion, those are all appropriate words, but the word that, that I would be prone to use to say this is at the core, this is at the very center, ground work, foundation of Christianity is substitution. If we don't have a substitute, his name is Jesus, If he had not substituted for us, we don't have a faith. It is at the very core of what we believe. Now, here's the problem. The problem is we are a people consumed with self. And we often miss the heart of substitution or the need to substitute for one another or to even recognize the substitution of Christ Because we are so caught up in self-preservation and self-protection and self-exaltation that we miss it altogether. So I want to take you to a story. If you will, turn in your Bibles to Genesis 43. And as you turn there, I'm going to fill you in on where we're jumping in into the middle of this story. I want to take you to a story, first book of the Bible, And to a familiar story, one that if you've been in or around church any length of time, uh, you you know it, or at least you're familiar with it. Even those outside the church would say, yeah, I've kind of heard of, of this story of Joseph. Let me tell you what's happening before we jump in in chapter 43. Joseph, and let me just say this, I would encourage you this week, if you... If you're looking for something to read in the Bible and and what can I uh, spend my personal time with the Lord doing, read Genesis 37 through 50. It's the full story of Joseph and what God did in his life and through him. But Joseph, starting in chapter 37, Joseph is uh, is a son of Jacob. He's one of 12 sons of Jacob and he's the second to youngest son of Jacob. Now Jacob is one of the three patriarchs of the Israelites. You've got Abraham, you've got Isaac, you've got Jacob. Jacob is the grandson of Abraham, and then Jacob had 12 sons. If you've been reading in the Old Testament at any point, and you read about the 12 tribes of Israel, those tribes came from the 12 sons of Jacob. So one of those tribes came from Joseph. Now Jacob 
had children. He had those sons, and he did have one daughter as well, but he had those 12 sons from four different women, two that were his wives and two that were basically his concubines or his servants. Now, it's a different sermon for a different day of, is is that okay? The answer is no. (laughs) But I'm not going to address that today. But he had, he had these 12 sons from four different women. The, the, the mother of Joseph, the one whom he had Joseph with, is Rachel. And Rachel was the one that he loved the most. He adored Rachel. And Rachel was barren for years. And when she finally did conceive, she gave birth to Joseph and then later to Benjamin. So Jacob made no bones about it, no apologies to all of his sons that Joseph was his favorite because he was the firstborn of his beloved Rachel. Now there's another sermon for another day. Is favoritism okay? No, it's not okay. Uh, Jacob is a great case study for all the ways in which we see biblically God uses really messed up broken people to accomplish his purposes. But he shows great favoritism to Joseph and makes no apologies that he's his favorite. And so he gives him this coat of many colors, and Joseph doesn't help him out, himself out any either, because Joseph goes around telling his brothers about these dreams he's having. He starts bragging to his brothers, hey, I had this, I had this dream again that you're going to bow down to me one day. And so you can imagine that brothers who already are deeply jealous of this youngest brother are now uh, growing in hatred all the more. And I don't use that word uh, you know, accidentally, it says in Genesis 37 on three different occasions that they hated Joseph, hated him. So much so that one day they decide that as this, as Joseph is approaching them, they come up with a plan, let's kill this dreamer. Let's do away with him so we don't have to deal with him anymore. So they throw him into a pit, leave him for dead. One of the brothers comes along and says, you know, let's not kill him, but let's, let's, uh, Let's just make our dad believe that he died. So they dip his coat, shred it into pieces, dip it into, into a goat's blood, and take it back to Jacob and say he's been shredded to pieces by a wild animal. In the meantime, Joseph is slow, sold into slavery uh, into the hands of some Ishmaelites who take him to Egypt. And as far as Jacob knows, and eventually as far as their bro- his, uh, his brothers know, Joseph is no more. Now, right after chapter 37 where you get that story of Joseph being sold into slavery by his brothers who hated him, you get this story that seems to be inserted that doesn't fit. Because then, in chapter 39, you're right back in the Joseph story. You've got chapter 37, Joseph, chapter 39, Joseph. But in chapter 38, there's this story about one of his older brothers, Judah. Now, you've heard the term Judah before, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, because Judah becomes one of the more prominent tribes of Israel, so much so that when the kingdom splits later on, there's a northern kingdom and there's a southern kingdom of Israel, and the southern kingdom is called Judah. So you see this name over and over and over and over again. And so there's this story in chapter 38 about Judah and this girl named Tamar, who's his daughter-in-law, and and it's one of those stories where you you get about three-fourths of the way through it, and you might do this. Can I be reading this in the Bible? This is crazy messed up stuff. The short of the story is this. Uh, Judah sleeps with his daughter-in-law, Tamar, because he thought she was a prostitute because she had veiled herself and he gets her pregnant. 
And you go, man, this is, this is so messed up. Now, add to the fact that as you keep reading through the Old Testament and as you get to the New Testament, what you begin to realize is that it's through the seed of Judah that Jesus comes. We're told in the scriptures that Jesus is in the line of Judah, which reinforces all the more what I've already said about Jacob, even more so about Judah, that God chooses over and over and over again to use wrecked people, genuinely broken, sinful, wretched people, to even bring about his salvation for the world. But as you continue in the story, you begin to see that there's a potential, and I think there is a full kind of transformation of the heart from Judah as we get more into the Joseph story. And this is what I want to zero in on. So what happens is one of the dreams that God gives the the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh, is he gives him this dream that there's going to be famine in the land. But he doesn't know how to interpret it. And so Joseph, you can read all the details, but long story short, Joseph ends up before the king interpreting the dream for him and telling him, we've got to save up grain and food to be able to not only sustain us, but sustain the whole region around us when the famine comes. And so Joseph becomes, over time, essentially the king of Egypt. Now, he's second in command, but the the king, the pharaoh, is really more uh, a political figurehead. And Joseph is the one who's running the day-to-day operation of the kingdom. And so, sure enough, the famine comes, and in Israel, there is no food. And so, here's all of his brothers now who are coming to Egypt to see if they can find food. And they find themselves in front of this Joseph. But they don't know it's Joseph, because Joseph is now fully Egyptian, you, you've seen the, 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 the garb, if you will, of, of the Egyptians in this day and time and the, the eye makeup and the headdress and the, the full garments and everything. And so they don't recognize that this is their brother Joseph, but Joseph recognizes them. And Joseph begins to tell them, uh, you will not get what you need until you bring your father with you and your youngest brother with you. He inquires, they tell him, yeah, this is not everybody And so he begins to kind of play this game with him. You've got to go back. You've got to get your father. You've got to go back. You've got to get your youngest brother. So we enter into the story in the place where they have gone back to Jacob. And Jacob is elderly at this time. And now Benjamin's his favorite because it's the only son of Rachel. And the brothers have come back and have said, we all, Benjamin's got to go with us or he won't listen. And Jacob is saying, no, no, I've already lost Joseph. I cannot lose Benjamin as well. Listen to what Judah says in chapter 43, verse 8. And Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. Now listen to verse 9. And I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. There's been a shift in this Judah guy who has been nothing but a creep in the past. All of a sudden is saying to his father, the one whom they deceived earlier, and Judah was a big part of that, to where now he's saying, I will substitute for Benjamin. I will stand in the place of Benjamin. If I do not come back with him, then put the blame on me forever. I will be his safety. So Jacob lets Benjamin go. Flip over to chapter 44. 
Joseph continues to test his brothers. And Judah speaks up. And you get in chapter 44 this long speech from Judah to Joseph. And at the end of that speech, listen to what Judah says. He says, now therefore, this is verse 30. Now therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father... And the boy is not with us because what jo- Joseph has said is he said, you got to go back and get your father and bring him to me, but leave Benjamin with me. Leave your youngest brother with me. And Judah's saying, no, 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 I can't do that because I pledged that I would be his substitute and he's got to go with me. And so he's explaining that. Verse 31, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant, talking about himself, Judah, became a pledge of safety for the boy to to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I will bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain. Let me remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. I won't read it, but this is the turning point where Joseph finally breaks. I think a big part of why Joseph at this point, at the beginning of chapter 45, breaks and he begins to weep. I think a big part of that is because he sees this changed heart of an older brother who was such a deceiver in the past who now is one who is willing to substitute. He sees an attitude of substitution and he's broken over it. And you'll, you'll hear, you won't see it on the screen, but listen to this. It says, verse 40, uh, chapter 45, verse 1, Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when, G, when, when Joseph made himself known to his brothers and he wept aloud. Now, this is not like little tears out of the corner of my eye. This is snot running out of the nose, can't catch my breath, weeping, crying on the shoulders of his brothers. And his brothers are terrified when he says, it's, it's me, it's, it's Joseph. Because they think, oh my goodness, revenge is now going to be had fully and completely. And he is going to kill us. And Joseph says instead, he says, come near. I want to be near to you. And not only am I not going to kill you, I'm going to provide for you. And I'm going I'm to bring down all, go get your dad, go get our dad, and get all the family, and bring everyone down to Egypt. I'm going to give you the best food and the best land. And you may be at this point going, why did we just talk about all that? What is the big deal about Judah? I want you to see something. We have to be able... It's so important for us as Christians to be able to read stories like this and begin to see the foreshadowing that is taking place that is ultimately pointing to what Jesus would fulfill. Don't miss this. The attitude of substitution from Judah was just a little foreshadowing of the atonement of substitution that would come from Jesus. This is all over the Old Testament, by the way. Don't ignore your Old Testament. I know it can be hard to understand what's going on. And sometimes you hear a preacher start talking about these things and you're like, I just get lost in the Old Testament. I get it. I get it. But it is so easy to not understand the grandeur and the majesty and the beauty of all that Jesus is for us when we miss little stories like this. Listen, 
I want to tell you about what had to have been the greatest small group Bible study in the history of the world. It comes at the end of the book of Luke, where there's, it talks about how there's these two disciples after Jesus is raised from the dead who are walking with Jesus on the road to Emmaus, this little village outside of Jerusalem. And it says, one of them was probably Luke, because he's the only one that tells this story. It says that as they were walking with Jesus, Jesus took out the scriptures, meaning the Old Testament, and he began to show them how all of the law and all of the prophets and all of these stories in the Old Testament were all pointing to him. That had to have been amazing. And we have to begin to see and understand these stories of how they point us to the magnificence of Jesus. In this case, it was this little inkling of one who was willing to substitute that would give us a picture of the one who was to come that would be the substitute listen judah was willing to substitute for a brother that had done him no wrong jesus came and substituted for enemies who had wronged him in every way this is at the heart of what god loves i mentioned earlier he loves the aroma of substitution. Where would we get that language from? Flip over two books with me to the book of Leviticus. I know you probably had your quiet time in Leviticus this morning. Um, Leviticus is the book that comes right after Exodus. What happens is that God's people are brought down to Egypt because of Joseph. But Joseph dies and the subsequent kings uh, don't care about Israel the way that Joseph did. And so... Uh, they begin to see these aren't a people that are of us. These are a people that could be our slaves. And so over time, for 400 years, the Israelites become enslaved to the Egyptians. So the book of Exodus is about that Exodus where God leads the people out of slavery, his people out of slavery through Moses. And then you get to the book of Leviticus where God is ready to tabernacle with his people, meaning he's ready to be with them, to be in their midst that his presence would be with them. And so he establishes this, this thing called the tabernacle that would eventually become what we would know as the temple. And in the tabernacle, in order for people to have communion with God, for there to be relationship at some level, interaction at some level with God, is that there had to be substitution because God is holy, perfect, pure, unique, other, and we are sinful. And because of our sin, we cannot be with a holy God. And he says, okay, I'm going to give you a system of substitution. I'm going to give you a system where when sacrifice is made and substitution is had, the wrath, the just wrath of God upon sin, what sin deserves, will be poured out on the substitute and not on my people so that my people can walk free. So Leviticus begins to explain to us what this system is. And in the very first chapter of Leviticus, you get this ex these explanations that happen over and over again. Listen to verse 10 through 13. It says, If his gift for a burnt offering is from the flock, from the sheep or goats, he shall bring a male without blemish, and he shall kill it on the north side of the altar before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar. And he shall cut it into pieces with its head and its fat, and the priest shall arrange them on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But the entrails and the legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall offer all of it and burn it on the altar. And you stop right there, and you go, man, this is gross. This is gory. Why would God want this? Is he a God that's bloodthirsty? Is he a God that loves death? Is he a God that loves gore? Like, what is up with this God? If you only read that, you go, this is weird. But when we begin to have a 
bigger biblical narrative of what God is up to in the system that he is putting in place to point to something greater to come, we begin to understand that God is doing this not because he loves death, he actually hates death. But he's doing this so that he can pour out mercy on his people. Listen to what it says at the end of verse 13. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, and get this, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Sometimes we think about the temple, if you've thought about these things before, the temple and the tabernacle as being this ornate, beautiful place, and it was at some level, but it was a place of blood and death. Why? Because that's what sin deserves from a holy God. You say, where is God's grace and mercy in this? God's grace and mercy is he's saying, instead of pouring my just wrath on sin out on you, bring me a substitute. Bring me one who will take the just wrath of sin in your place so that you can be forgiven and walk free. But here's the problem. There's a word missing in here. And the word is fully, listen to this again. It is a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to to the Lord. Not a fully pleasing aroma to the Lord. In the Old Testament sacrificial system, the problem was this. I would bring the bull, I would bring the lamb, I would bring the calf, I would bring the bird, and I would make sacrifice so that because of my sin, the substitute pays for it, and I get to walk free. But as soon as I walk free, what do I do within the next hour? I sin again. So what do I have to do tomorrow? I got to find another sheep. I gotta find another bull, I gotta find another bird, I gotta find another way to come back and substitute again and again and again and again. And it was exhausting until Jesus. Jesus comes and Jesus fully lives out what Judah talked about. Remember Judah's words? I will be his safety. And I will take the eternal blame. That was for Benjamin. Jesus shows up on the scene and he says the very same thing, but he doesn't say it just for Benjamin. He says it's for all of us. I will be their safety. Father, put the eternal blame on me. I will be the substitute. And in a much more gory way than a bull being ripped apart on an altar and blood splattered on the sides of the altar, Jesus hung himself on the altar of Golgotha and allowed himself to be ripped to pieces. So that the just wrath of God would once and for all be poured out on the sacrificial substitute lamb of God, Jesus himself. Why? So that the mercy of God would be poured out on his people that we may walk free, forgiven, fully accepted, righteous. That is beautiful substitution. Two questions. Have you trusted in your substitute? Have you surrendered to him, to your substitute Jesus? His substitution doesn't mean anything if you 
don't respond with a heart of surrender by faith in him. It's available to us. Have your eyes been opened to see his beauty and his substitution for you? Secondly, what's your aroma? How do you smell? See, there's something that's really cool that happens that once we surrender to Christ and once we trust in him by faith and say, Jesus, you are my substitute. You are the one that takes the just wrath of sin in my place. And so I will trust you forever and ever and you will be my God whom I will be satisfied with, not just today, not just tomorrow, but for all of eternity. And when we believe upon Christ, he puts the spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, in us. And he begins, and this is a different aroma. It's not the aroma of substitution. It's the very aroma of Christ himself in all of its facets. He begins to put that in us and come out of us in a way to where the world around us is impacted by the aroma of Christ in us. Listen, look at this from 2 Corinthians chapter 2. I love this language, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere for we are the aroma of Christ. How do you smell? What's your aroma this week in your home with your spouse, with your kids? Are you the aroma of Christ? In your workplace, what, what's your aroma? It goes on to say that we are either an aroma of death to those who are perishing because they've rejected Christ or an aroma of life to those who will believe upon him. Are you carrying the aroma of Christ everywhere you go? This week you're going to potentially be with some relatives that you don't care to be around. What's your aroma going to be? How are you going to smell? Will it be the aroma of Christ? Here's my last challenge very briefly. Today. Tomorrow, from this point forward, every time you smell something good, think about your substitute. Think about Jesus. And say, thank you, oh God, that you substituted for me, Jesus. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your grace upon grace upon grace, that you would pour out your wrath on Jesus in our place, that you would... uh, Awaken us to see the power of the one who substituted for us. God, would you tune our hearts to be enthralled with you, Christ. To be amazed at what you have done for us. And would you fill us indeed with your spirit in such a way that the aroma of Christ would be poignant through us into the lives of those around us. Would you do it, O oh Father? And would you do it for your glory? In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.